chapter 2, verses... Henning's reading is taken from Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, which can be found on page 1914 of the Church Bibles. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. That you've called us together this evening as your people, and we trust that you are going to do something for us this evening. Pray that it will be your words that people hear this evening. Pray that your spirit would be at work and your son would be glorified as he glorified you. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how you would feel about these words uh, coming verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Probably put a chill down the backs of all of those of us who've got quite used to a Western version of Christianity in which Jesus is a Western liberal and the world just has getting on with it, and we don't want to upset the boat. But these are realities uh, for us, and we can read from this something from Revelation for the church in Smyrna, uh, what the sorts of things were that they had to deal with. Uh, let's have a quick look, remind ourselves that there were seven churches uh, in the area that John had prob probably knew quite well, that he may have toured or helped a pastor to. Uh, Smyrna is northwest, uh, as you can see, of Ephesus. It was itself, uh, had been quite a, a famous and vibrant city until about 580 BC when it was destroyed by the Lydians, which was a, a sort of a sub-tribe. Myrrh is the Greek, uh, or sorry, Smyrna is the Greek for myrrh. Uh, so it become very wealthy on a very expensive spice. Um, and it's important, if you think, to think about their history, that they had been once affluent. And they had once, if you think about it, what we talked about at Christmas was about how myrrh was that symbol of divinity. So it must have had a, a thriving religious, uh, albeit pagan, sort of society that was crushed by the Lydians, who a tribe nobody ever heard of afterwards. Um, and then they were rebuilt and repopulated by the Romans. And I think that's quite an interesting little uh, layer there, that having been a power, they were then crushed. Then they were raised again to power by their enemies, okay, uh, who then allowed some of them to become Roman citizens. It's not likely that Christians who refused to acknowledge 
that the emperor was God, or a demigod, were likely to have gained much citizenship. So writing to the church at Smyrna, uh, this, this community has already uh, suffered in a couple of ways. There's, although not in living memory, there's the history of what they once were. There's the kind of antagonism, if you like, of having been propped up by your enemies who now decided who was a citizen and who was not. You think the complications about whether or not you want a European passport. You know, do you know what I mean? Those sorts of... that. I don't, I don't like to make light of it, but some of these things are so relevant. Who do I belong to? What are my rights? Where do I fit in? For the substrata of Roman society, where do I fit? Not really anywhere. I'm not really a person. And so it's important just to have that little bit of background uh, before we... Um, we sort of dig into the text a bit more. This was a, this was a sort of a, a once famous, one now then fallen, then sort of propped up uh, by another country um, sort of situation that people were growing up into. And the church had come to life there, uh, evidently with some vitality, because uh, the first thing that we read about, in, or the first thing that we get here, is that they're going to be persecuted. There's trouble coming. And there's only trouble coming when you're doing something God wants and the enemy doesn't. Um, I'll come to Polycarp shortly, um, but here Ian very helpfully gave us last week a sort of a layout of the structure of each letter, and, and it follows that format. We've only got four verses, but there's no condemnation within there. There's no, I have this against you, uh, like four or five of the other churches, and you might be sort of lulled into thinking, well, this is quite nice. This is, this is a nice-ish letter. We, two things to be uh, uh, aware of, that these seven letters are for the whole church. These are for the whole church. Uh, there's a, sort of, there's a um, church growth model or exercise where sort of inevitable churches are encouraged to think about which one of these churches they are. And, they, and people will inevitably say, well, we're like Philadelphia or we're like the good ones. Uh, but actually this message is for all of them. Uh, and so it's not to be taken that this is where we're at. These are things that the whole church of the time needed to hear, and that warning is still relevant. And it's a hard truth, isn't it? You are about to suffer. It's not something I think we're ready for. It's not something I think we're particularly good at or keen on. In uh, 2017, Premier Christianity, or the, you know, the magazine, uh, conducted a survey in the Europe, uh, UK, sorry, uh, UK and US uh, about how people felt about Christianity. Uh, 93% of Christians felt they were being marginalised in society. Over 9 out of 10 felt that we were actually being pushed to the edge. 80% that thought that Christianity was not given equal respect or consideration to other religions or none. 67%, so over two-thirds, said they felt unable to be open about their faith at work. 50% said they had experienced prejudice because of their faith. And 26% said they feared they would be persecuted for being open about their faith. Now, what shape that would take is quite interesting. You know, it's difficult to imagine. It's not kind of the persecution that Christians in the Middle East or China or South America suffer. But it's there. It's sort of the underlying current that a lot of people uh, felt that uh, it was something that they had to contend with. Tim Farron, who, who resigned as the head of the Liberal Democrats in June 2017, said, we are kidding ourselves 
if we think we live in a tolerant, liberal society? Where is the, vo where is the voice coming from? So at a time like today, a, vo a, a message like this, a letter like this could be very helpful. Do not be afraid. Difficult times are coming. An important thing to remember is that God is still sovereign. God is in charge of it. Let's not lose sight of that. Let's, there's some little clues in this, in this letter to help us. Um, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, who's in charge? Who's in control in that, in that thought? Ten days. Whatever the devil tries to do, it's limited. God's hand is over his people. The devil may send some, but the trial is the devil by God. And there's a purpose, even a purpose, that God allows the devil to refine his church, to sharpen them up, to bring them to, to, bring them to fullness. If we want to know the strength of something, whether it's a live circuit, acid or alkali, diamond or fake, forged no or for real, we test it, don't we, to see its quality. Does it meet the expectations? God is allowing his church to be tested. That they might bear fruit, that they might grow, that they may be strong. That they would endure. They might not overcome, but they would be stronger for it. And I think that's an, that's an important thing. That times of testing are things which we, we hopefully go through. We don't back off or shy away. They're things that we endure in order that we might see more of God and less of us. We might experience more of his goodness as we throw our trust in him. I'm a big fan of John Piper, whose, whose um, mantra, if you like, is that we, we glorify God most when we show that we are content in him. We glorify God the most when we show that we are content in him, that we're not going to be swayed or distracted. But some of the, that actually he is the focus of who we are. So let's have a look at some of these things. Would we want to be tested? I've put polycarp up because there was clearly some, uh, some persecution that came. It, it seems to be later than when this letter is written but it was also there in the background at the same time. Remember, Stephen was persecuted, wasn't he? The first martyr, Acts chapter 8, great speech, and then they stoned him. The Jews amongst the, some of the Jews amongst the synagogues had already plotted to sort him out. So there's this undercurrent. Although Christianity at this point is still a subgroup of Judaism, it's still got enemies on the inside. It's still got people who, are, who want it out, and they may well be behind uh, some of the trouble. The specific persecution that we are, we're thinking about here, there's just a little bit of word play here to be careful with. Um, the affliction of verse 9, that's, that's, that's a central thing. Look, I know your afflictions. It's actually in the, I don't like to undermine confidence in the Bible, but it is in the singular. <laughs> the affliction. A, a, an orchestrated campaign. Not a series of random things, but a thing that was against you, which is why I mentioned Stephen, because of it. the beginning of the gospel breaking out, 
there is antagonism and opposition to it. The affliction was the opposition to the gospel. The word is thlipsis, uh, and it means the specific persecution, which in, seems to endure and also include this, this physical suffering. Be faithful, we read further on, even to the point of death. Now, I don't want to, we're not going to have a sort of show and tell, but if you, you, we've had moments amongst us where, where death has been a reality and, and you know that you've been near. And Jesus is encouraging his people to not be afraid even at that point. And I think that's a very bold thing for a church to be asked to undertake. Do not be afraid. Be faithful even to the point of death. Well, what are we like? I'm going to skip a few. What do we think? You'll be relieved. Um, <clears throat> but what are we like, you know, when we're put under pressure? See, the Jews who were against Stephen were clearly very vocal at the, um, the execution, the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is later, and, and were supporters of the Diocletian persecutions that came as well. So this message is, is not just like a one-off thing. There's like going to be a campaign. They're going to be in an environment which is against them, that is set against them. And that's our lot in life, actually, isn't it? If we're, if we're realistic, that's our lot. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. We are people who have been brought out of darkness into light and the darkness doesn't like it. It resents the fact that there's something alternative to the world that they've chosen, the lives that they pursue and the sin that they live in. Nobody wants to be exposed by light. And the problem is that a Christian who's on fire and full of the spirit often exposes things in other people that aren't good. So being afflicted may not be a, a, a bad thing. It's, it's more about what comes out when you're pushed. When the cracks appear, what comes out? Is it grace and, and, and repentance or is, it, or is it recrimination and judgment? When we find ourselves pushed and squeezed as Jesus was, as Paul was, as the apostles were, what do we emit? What do we give in return? What happens when the pressure's on. And it says something about who we are internally, doesn't it? I think in the cup before, if you bump into somebody, if you bump into somebody and coffee is spilt, the coffee was already in the cup. And what's in us that gets knocked over? What is that that was spill on people when we get knocked, when we get bumped? And a world that's against us, I'm afraid to say, is looking for those cracks looking for them it's quite challenging isn't it <coughs> excuse me <coughs> it's looking for opportunities to expose something less than Christ something that's not here's, here's the unfairness of the gospel we're always going to be compared to Jesus whether they believe in him or not yes, that's the truth isn't it so whether you know however good we are and however unbelieving they are we're always going to be compared to somebody they don't care about but if we're going to be effective witnesses and if we're going to present the gospel and be the church the body of Christ if we're going to see things happen around us 
then there's something about bearing the affliction, bearing the physical opposition, the niggles, the things that sort of chip away at who we are, who we think we are, who we want to be. Because they want us to be exposed for not being and therefore expose God as a lie. But the truth is in us. And he that is in us is greater than the world. And Jesus said, I've overcome the world. It's something about who we hold on to. The reality is, of course, in our world, is it going to be conviction or compromise? Are we going to hold firm to what we believe to be truth? Or are we going to say, well, that's okay for you? And it's very difficult. We'll come to that in a moment. But that's an important thing to recognize, that they lived in a world that was trying to get rid of them and expose Christianity as being not true, not workable, not worth it. That was their culture, and ours isn't very different. The next thing I want to think about is that they talked about being in poverty. I know your afflictions, or affliction, and your poverty. As I hinted, they were at the bottom of the heap in this Roman, you know, this Roman city, in this Roman culture. Very few of them would have had full citizenship. And here they are at the bottom. They won't have access to resources. They wouldn't have had access to, you know, they would have been the last in the queue on almost everything. And the word used is uh, tochia, which is nothing at all, rather than penia, which is nothing extra. It's a difference, isn't it? Are we able, we can probably, very few, nothing extra, and perhaps some of us do, but very few of us would manage to live with nothing at all. They were really at the bottom of the heap. Imagine having to scratch around, barter, trade, plead for food when nobody was interested. And in our world, even the idea that you go without something that you're interested in can be quite hard because it quickly becomes an idol. It quickly becomes something, I must have that or else my life is not complete. Or my we I struggle if I don't get time to do that. And I'm speaking quite honestly. You know, there are things I like to do. If I don't get to do them once a week or whenever, it's like, what's happening with my life? So we need to be careful. They, went, got, they got by with nothing because, and Jesus says, you're rich. How are we rich? When anyone accepts Jesus Christ as their personal saviour, they are enriched, we're told, in Ephesians with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In fact, we're compared to be complete in Christ. We lack nothing. We might not be able to use it yet, but we've been it's ours. Compared to what the world offers, what we've been given already is, what is, is beyond our measure. It's the immeasurable riches of Christ. But in the time, until that day comes, we know that we have hope. Something that, something that so many people are hopeless. We've been given faith. It's a gift of God that we might know and trust that he may do something. We've been given peace. How many people, I was talking to two, uh, two men in the Coffee Connect this week, 
The idea of stillness and peace was of importance to them, but eludes them. And yet we can have peace with God himself. It talks about faith, belief, the ability to actually have know that there is a God who's working for us, who's got his plans for us. And to know that we are loved is something the world is crying out for and finding in all the wrong places. I mean, we could go on and on, couldn't we? We could say that we, were, we know that we are listened to, that we're a child of God, that we are heard, that we are loved, that God sings over us, that we can stand in his presence, that he spiritually in us. I mean, do we want to go on? The power of the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are able, we're gifted spiritually and personally. Jesus declares these guys who on the face of it had nothing but dirt to be rich because of how much they had thrown their trust in him, how much they clung to him. This is not, I have to put a little warning, this is not go and sell your home. But it's an interesting comparison about where they were putting their priorities. They're enduring to the, to the nth degree and then some. And there they discover the riches of Christ. So remember, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. A sense in which we're to remember that God loves us. Look at the birds in the field. Do they sow or reap? No, but your father feeds them all. And his story of, you know, uh, is it Thomas Muller? who ran the orphanages in Bristol. George Muller, thank you very much. George Muller and the orphanages that just experienced again and again God's mysterious and miraculous provision because George trusted God. Last one is slander in verse 9. This is quite difficult, isn't it? The devil put, um, I know, verse, still in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. So I've already touched on the idea that some of the people of God who gathered were actually trying to deny the Messiah um, and, and attribute it to, you know, and, and the, the devil was at work. And we've already realized that that's okay because God is bigger than the devil and he's going to limit that. He's put a limit on what they're going to endure. But this is our world now, and this was their world then, I think. Life begins when you stand up to Christian fascists. I was called a fascist one, actually. That's quite staggering by another Christian. Um, there isn't a deep, dark soul here that's sort of hiding. I was quite surprised. Uh, life begins when you stand up to Christian fascists. There's, there's, there are, within the church and without of the church, um, people who are not prepared to contend or put up with the truth. They don't want that. There's another version that they'd rather have, that time and again, and Ian touched on it this morning, um, we, we can read in the church times that there are plenty of churches that think it's about human flourishing and thriving, and that the cross is very much a side issue. That substitutionary atonement was not God's big idea. That was kind of, a, kind of an add-on. Sorry, you can't get that feature according. <laughs> but that's our... But that's, that's our culture. And we live, we're increasingly living with this, and it's very difficult. I had a really good conversation with a friend the other day, and it happens, how do you work? work they work in a school, 
And within the department is a range of views about all sorts of things. And their view was, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, so whatever they say shouldn't change me, but I have to get on with them and at the same time have the integrity to be um, the person that God's called me to be in this place. And there's a fine line, and I'll come to it later, but there's a fine line, isn't there, between being kind and, and, and being compromising and being convic- you know, having conviction and being judgy. So it's important, and that's our culture. If you want a sort of more toned-down version, that was, in, that was in Chicago. I think this one was also in, uh, in the States, but it's, this one's been uh, around as well. Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness' sake. And this is the kind of humanist uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, sort of approach to sort of life, that actually, if we just all got on, uh, it would, well, would be a better place. But that's not the answer. That's not what the gospel proclaims, is it? It says uh, we, we, we're to be more than that. Uh, there's more at stake. And the reality is that they don't know, and yet they keep testing and pushing. Somebody, don't use this at home. Uh, somebody once said that men test ideas and women test men. Think about that one, and you can talk about that at home. But, uh, but the reality is that the world wants to test Christians. And is it real? Is it real? And they'll just keep poking, poking, poking. The, the idea of testing isn't just like sitting you down, is there an exam? But poke, 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 poke until it gives. And, that, and it's that provocation, which means just think, I'm looking at this text and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not sure. Where, where do we go from here? What, what was Smyrna being asked to do? And I think they were being asked to do this. <laughs> kind of stay on that fine, high wire that's kind of above stuff but not separated from it and, and, and trying to balance all of these things that we think are important. I've just been reading uh, the first three of five studies by John Piper. It's a really, really dangerously titled book. Make Your Life Count. Make your life count. It's five little reflections. I'm on number three at the moment. I'm still reeling from it. Um, But the first one is, you know, focus on the cross, Christ's redeeming work. The next one is be prepared to have to exchange Western idolatry for self-sacrifice. And the third one is pick up your cross and follow me to places where the gospel has not yet been heard and be prepared to endure. Letter to challenging stuff. But we're going to have to, if we're going to follow this letter, if we're going to take something from this letter to heart, is it not about the difference that we can make if we just hold on and walk as Christ has taught us to? To follow him to a life worthy of his calling. And for me, it sort of emerges when I go to clergy things and everybody assumes you're on the same page. Um, and for some of you, it's different, isn't it? You, you, you go to work or you belong to volunteer groups and you find yourself actually in a room with people who are, who are perhaps bitter or who experience is, is, is unhelpful. Um, I, I, had, you know, I had to listen to somebody a couple of weeks ago pouring out their heart that their 45-year-old son died. That's horrible. And you imagine, you know, and here I am trying to talk about God and they're saying, what God? How is that Okay. And you mix with these people and I mix with people like this and how are we going to be people who can hold on to that integrity? How can we not be afraid of that? And those are some difficult things. And those are the kinds of accusations that people would throw against the Christians. It doesn't work. Yet God's no good. But that's, how, that's what we're called to be wherever we are. And I'll leave you to think about those things. 
Who are we? How can I make a difference? What am I enduring? How can I be like God? How can I be like Christ? Represent God to the people and the people to God? How can I be an agent of change? How can I hold on to who God's made me to be without compromising? They're hard questions. But if the gospel has any power, isn't it to live without fear? Isn't it to live to glorify God and put our trust in him? Isn't it to say yes to our master? Isn't it to follow him faithfully? Because we don't walk alone. We don't walk without hope. We don't walk without resources. But we do live in a difficult world. And tomorrow may be hard. Shall we be still?